we're in the eighth week of this series that we've called Words Matter. And uh, we have been talking about the words and the fruit of the Spirit and, and the idea that so often we get familiar with these words, we hear the words, but they, uh, they take on a different meaning. The meaning gets diluted, the, uh, the meaning gets changed, and uh, we need, taking some time to remind ourselves of uh, what uh, this is really about. And, and this morning, uh, here's, here's the thing, we have two weeks left, today and next Sunday, and then we start the Advent season. How did that happen? I don't know, but uh, that's what we're doing. And this week, we're going to talk uh, about maybe one of the uh, one of the most misused words, misunderstood words in all of uh, the fruit of the spirit, and that's the word gentleness. Now, when I say gentleness, there's an inward groan that immediately happens because we have this this misconception of uh, gentleness that uh, is. Um, that is weakness. Uh, that's the idea of, of somebody's going to, if you're gentle, people are going to run over you. Uh, if you're gentle, it's a temperament. And it's a temperament of somebody who uh, is sort of helpless and who gets taken advantage of and, and they're simply just a weak person. And we have this idea of gentleness, but that's not at all what the New Testament talks about. When the New Testament talks about gentleness, it's a completely different word. And so let's look one more time. Let's look again at, at Galatians 5, 22 to 24. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24 says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified with the flesh with its passions and desires. I threw in this week verse 24 because it's an important verse for us if we really are going to consider uh, the idea of gentleness and we're going to consider the idea of the fruit of the Spirit because here's what the fruit of the Spirit does and one of the things we're going to talk about and here's an early disclaimer is that I'm not going to ask you to leave today and be more gentle. That's not the goal. Uh, and that's not really what this is all about because when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, we think about it's one thing. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. And, and uh, the idea, if you want to know what those fruit of the Spirit look like, if the fruit of the Spirit is all embodied in one person, it's Jesus. That if you want to know what the fruit of the Spirit is, it looks like Jesus. And so our goal this morning isn't to become more gentle, but our goal this morning is to look like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. That's what we're all after. Uh, we're not, I'm, I'm not gonna ask anybody to go out this morning or not any of these weeks and say, okay, I need to love more. I, 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 need, to, I, I need to have more joy. I'm gonna figure out. I'm gonna ask Mrs. C. She'll help me with that one. Uh, we don't know how to do that, right? But here's what we know how to do. Here's what our life is about. What it's built around is, is to look like Jesus. That's what we wanna talk about this morning. How does my life look more like Jesus? And we get this picture of the life of Jesus. We get this picture of what Jesus looks like from Galatians 5, 22. And then 24 says, and those who belong to Christ, 
those who belong to Jesus, those who want their lives to look like him, here's what you do. Here's something you can do this morning. He says, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And here's what this verse is telling us. It's telling us that, that if you really want to look like Jesus, there is something that you can do, that you can, you can crucify, you can allow your, your passions and your desires to be crucified. Now, people will tell me sometimes, you know, or ask me, Pastor Ray, is it okay to pray for something I really desire, something I really need? Is it okay to pray for that friend that I, that I really wanted to get healed? Or, and, and I tell him, you know what? Your heavenly father loves it when you come to him and, and pray specifically. He loves that. But, but the goal of all of it is to trust him, to learn to grow in him. What is it that he requires of it? What is it of us? And, and the passions and desires that are talked about uh, in Galatians 5.24 are really any, those things that keep us from following Jesus, those things that become more important in our lives than who Jesus is. It's anything that comes in front of Jesus in our lives. And he says, I want you to crucify those things. Put them aside because, because in order to live this life, in order to do this, you gotta be all in. You gotta be committed to Christ. He needs to be the center. And so what we talk about when we talk about looking like Jesus is that we're all in for Christ, that he's the center of our lives. He's our goal. He's our passion. He's, what we, he's the one that we live for. And so here we have this idea of crucifying our old passions and desires. Now, that's why we talk a lot about Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith through Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Or, or we have 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away and, and behold, the new has come, that we become a new person in him. And as we're a new person as him and as in him and as he grows in our lives, then we look more like Jesus. And that's what we're after. That's our purpose. That's our goal. That's the, our desire. And so then we get to a word like gentleness. And, and you know, we can look at the fruit of the spirit and say, I like almost all of those. I'm all about, you know, love is a great thing, right? As long as I can love the one people that I, that I want to love, I mean, that are lovable, that love me back, and I'm, I'm good with love. Joy, I don't know what to do about that. You just look happier. I don't know. How do you, how do you get the joy, the, uh, the peace, you know? I don't like patience that much because it takes so long, but... We, we sort of pick all of these and then we get to gentleness and it's just one that doesn't fit into our culture. We're kind of bootstraps people, right? We're sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and we're, we're individuals and, and we, we thrive on that. And yet then we get this passage that says that part of the fruit of the spirit, part of what it means to look like Jesus is to be a gentle person. And so I wanna help you out this morning. That gentleness is sometimes translated meekness. It's just getting worse, isn't it? <laughs> okay, Larry, you were, you, were, you were bad, now you've gone downhill. Okay, but sometimes it's translated meekness, that that's what it looks like. How, how does Jesus look like those things? In, in Galatians 5, 22, this idea of gentleness, it comes from a Greek word that's prautis, and, and th there's a and it's a big word, and we have a hard time sometimes describing it in English, but it, it's, uh, it has a, carries a picture with it. 
And here's the picture. The picture is of a great war horse, uh, a great stallion that's so under control that the soldier that's riding that war horse can guide that horse in battle with just his knees. And so the, the real definition in the New Testament of, of gentleness is strength under control. It has nothing to do with weakness. It has nothing to do with helplessness. It has to do with strength under control. And if you think about Jesus and you think about who he was, it fits perfectly, right? It makes total sense, this idea of strength under control. It's like Katrina sweeps through with its devastation and its power, or, or then you have this other picture of all of that water being run through a dam and lighting cities and states and communities. Uh, and bringing power to those places, that it's that idea, it's not a weakness, but it's a power, it's a strength that's under control. That's the idea of gentleness. So where do we go for that? I wanna wanna illustrate this idea of strength under control uh, by a New Testament story. And it's it's one of the more familiar New Testament stories, so I need to ask you a favor. Uh, I, I need you to sort of set aside Uh, all that you already know about this story, if you can, and give it another shot, because there's gonna be a tendency, because you've heard this story, and you're sort of, (laughs) yeah, I know that story, I'm good, uh, to sort of, you know, uh, not pay as much attention, or or to kind of jump to the end, I know how this turns out, and and then we miss all of the power that comes from from the story, it's a story about Jesus, it's a picture uh, about what Jesus looks like, So are you ready? I know what you're thinking. What's the story? It's not Christmas. We can't start that one yet. What is he gonna do? Well, it's the story of John 8, and it's called The Woman Caught in Adultery. Let's look at the story together. And I'm not gonna put the passage on the screen this morning. We're just gonna keep that image from uh, the movie The Passion and um, allow the story to speak to you this morning. John 8, starting in verse 2, says this, In the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses uh, commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they all went away one by one, beginning with the older ones and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I, neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on, sin no more. So we begin this story with Jesus, he's been praying at night, he goes back to the temple in the morning, and he begins teaching, and, and, and right away, the scribes, the, uh, the religious, the, the lawyers, the uh, temple lawyers, the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the experts in the law, who knew the law better than anybody else, who kept the law better than anybody else, they bring this woman caught in the act of adultery and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And we get this 
picture of her desperation. Uh, the, the only, pr- probably uh, in realistic terms, the only problem with this picture is that, that she probably had, didn't have that many clothes on. Uh, that they, they probably didn't give her a chance to sort of get dressed. We're going to see the Messiah. Uh, and they brought her and threw her down at the feet uh, of Jesus. And then they made their demand on Jesus. They said, Moses' law says that you should stone her. What do you say? Uh, and you know what? They were right. They were technically right. See, these guys knew their Bible. They, they had the stuff down cold, right? They, they, they could tell Jesus, hey, Moses, this is what Moses' law says. Now what are you gonna do about it? And, and technically, they were right. And, and so uh, here's, what, here's a point for us that sometimes being right isn't enough. Sometimes just being right isn't enough. And so they look at Jesus and say, what are you going to do? And the story says that Jesus knelt down and he starts writing in the dust. Now, I don't know, growing up, you may have heard a sermon on what it was that Jesus was writing. Um, (laughs) Here's full disclaimer. Nobody knows what Jesus was writing. So why is it in there? And here, the scholars that I trust the most, here's what they all believe, and, 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 and this is sort of, I'm just throwing this in, okay, because I can't help myself. It really doesn't have anything to do with the story, but Jesus is writing in the dust, and, and then they, t- they keep demanding he give an answer, and he stands up and he says something to him, and then he kneels down and he starts writing again uh, in the dust, and, and we don't know exactly what he was writing. We don't know exactly why he did it. But, but here's, here's why it's in there in the story. And that is because it's from an eyewitness. There was somebody standing there that day. There was somebody uh, writing this account. And because they were there and because that's what Jesus did, they put it into the account. And we're not exactly sure what, what the point was, but we know that it was from an, an eyewitness account. And if you're watching something and you're recording something, then you'd naturally put that in. Uh, to the story and it's sort of a proof for us that this is an eyewitness account of this event. So they, they demand an answer from Jesus and again, you guys, you, you know how this goes, right? Jesus gets up and, and, he, and, and he says, all right, you can stone her but let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now here's so, something that Jesus didn't do. He never said, don't stone her. He never said, don't throw a rock at her. What he said was, all right, but let he who's without sin cast the first stone. Now, they were scribes and Pharisees, so they knew that that was not a defensible thing to say because they knew they were all sin. Uh, they were all sinners. They, he knew they were all made mistakes, that that's why they had sacrifices, that why, why they had all the temple rituals, all of those things happened. So why would Jesus say that? And I'd like you to consider two reasons that Jesus said that. And the first one is simply this, that Yes, Moses' law says that they should be stoned, but Moses' law also said that both the man and the woman should be executed. So where's the guy? He's not there. 
And so based on their own judgment, then, then there's no case. And here's the other part, is that there were supposed to be two eyewitnesses. You see, the, the Hebrews were afraid that, that execution was going to become rampant, that there would be, there'd be too many. And so they set up these laws, they set up these rules uh, about capital offenses. And one of them was that there had to be two eyewitnesses. And so Jesus is saying, you didn't bring two eyewitnesses. There's no man here. This is a setup. So he doesn't say, don't throw a stone. But here's what he says to them, I know you guys. And it isn't about this woman. It isn't about this act of adultery. This isn't about what she's done, but this is so you can try to trap me. Yeah, you're right, sort of, about the law. But what you're really wrong about is your heart. What you're really wrong about is how you treated this person who's a, who's a victim in this, who has, who, you know, certainly she's guilty of what she did, but, but how they're using her is sort of unconscionable. And Jesus says, I know you guys, and let me explain to you that you are disqualified from being witnesses. It's not that you can't throw a stone, but you're disqualified. Because the very law that you talk about, you haven't kept. And so they were right about what Moses' law said, but they were wrong about why they did it, and they were wrong about how they were doing it. And sometimes being right just isn't enough, but we love to be right. We love being right, don't we? What we really love is just being more right than the next guy, right? I mean, I don't have to be perfect, but I just want to be more right than the next person. I just wanna feel like I'm a little more right than they are, so I feel a little bit better about myself. I feel a little more righteous about myself. And they wanted to feel more right. And they wanted to try to, to, to trap Jesus. And, and so you know, you know that, that if, if Jesus had said, no, don't stone her, but we need to forgive, we need to restore, that's what my whole mission has been about, then they would say that you're, you're, you're breaking Moses' law. How can anybody follow you? How can anyone trust what you say when you, when you don't pay attention to the law? But if he said, yes, obey the law, let's stone her, then they would say, but you, you, but you are constantly talking about love and you're talking about forgiveness and restoration and all of those things and, and how can you talk out of both sides of your mouth and so they felt like they had Jesus either way no matter what he said and Jesus turned it back to them and said but what about you? You forfeited your right to be a judge in this. You forfeited your right to bring this woman before us. And also, you know, this was supposed to this this was supposed to uh, be a trial. They're, they would never execute someone without a trial, and and throwing her down at the feet of Jesus in the temple courts was hardly what would qualify as a trial. But it was never about her. It was never about that. It was always about to trap Jesus. It was an attempt to be more right, an attempt to protect themselves, to care for themselves, and she was caught in the middle of it. You know, the Lord is really concerned about our heart. And so Jesus does two things in this story that I love, two things that he seems to always do. Jesus disturbs the comfortable, and he comforts the disturbed. He disturbs the comfortable. He he didn't let those religious leaders, he didn't let the scribes and the Pharisees sort of stay with their little arrogant ideas and and their attempts to trap him. He disturbed that. He disturbed the comfortable. But then look how he treated the woman. He says, woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, notice something interesting here. Jesus doesn't say, go and sin no more, and I won't condemn you. Right? He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now, go. Be redeemed, be restored, be free. You've experienced my love. You know what that forgiveness feels like. You know what it looks like. Now go and sin no more. And again, because we like being right so often in our lives, we've, we've sort of held out the idea that, that first it's go and sin no more, and then you won't get condemned. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus loves us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were separate from him, while we were living in rebellion, while we were far from him, he came and he made peace with God on our behalf. He died on a cross for our sins. He rose again so that we could have eternal life. And he says, neither do I condemn you. I came to restore you. Now go. And you see, the, the beauty about grace, the beauty about the gospel, is that it, it is a picture of the gentleness of Jesus, the greatness of the creator of the universe, pouring himself into a human form, being born in a manger, be, being born impoverished, being born without power, and doing that for our sake, doing that because he loved us, giving himself that way. The God of the universe who spoke everything into being did that for us. He was gentle for us, even though he was powerful, even though he could have changed it all with a breath. He's gentle. And then he says to us, go and do likewise. He's he's not saying, okay, now I want you to go out and figure out how to be gentle. You know what he's saying? He says, I want you to go out and I want you to live, I want you to live out what I've done in your life. I want you to live out the grace that you've experienced from me. I want you to live out the the gentleness that you've experienced from me. I, I want you to feel that and then I want you to live that out in the world. That's where we get gentleness. It's not something I can manufacture. It's not something I can make up. It's not something I can do on my own. But it comes from the realization of what Christ has done for me and it comes from his love and his strength growing in my life. And it's the fruit that grows out of knowing Jesus. It's about being like him, being like Jesus. You know, gentleness... Gentleness, we're people who restore others. Gentle people are people who restore others rather than condemn others. Gentle people are, are, are people who, who bear one another's burdens because Jesus bore our greatest burden. When we look at Jesus and we look at this story in John 8 and we see how Jesus handled the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and we see how he handled this woman, one of the things that becomes really clear to us is that Jesus wasn't all gentleness and no justice. But Jesus is, Jesus is all justice, but he's also all compassion. And those two things don't fight in Jesus, but those two things come together in perfect harmony in Jesus. 
So often we get caught on justice and we're all about justice and then maybe we swing over to the idea that we're all about compassion and yet Jesus is calling us to both. He wants us to recognize that, that when we're separated from God, we're separated from God and there are consequences to that and there's trials and struggles that come from that but he also wants us to understand that he's in the business of restoring us, he's in the business of saving us and that both of those things come together in Christ and what it does to us is it forces us to be honest with ourselves, right? It forces us to acknowledge the stuff in our own lives, the mess in our own lives, but then to be grateful for what Christ has has done for us. It's the gospel. It's a great picture of, of who Jesus really is. Gentleness. Gentleness leads to friendship and uh, gentleness leads to community. You know, we often avoid community because we don't want anyone to know our stuff. We don't want people to get mixed up in, in stuff in our lives. And so we sort of avoid those kinds of friendships and we avoid that kind of community. But here's the reality is that real friendship and real community only grows when we allow people to get into our stuff. When we're living our lives with other people and we can't avoid the, the, the times that we're struggling or the times that our lives are a mess or the times that something tragic happens to us, that's when people have the privilege of, of bearing our burdens. That's when people have the privilege of entering into our lives with restoration and love and, and the gentleness of Christ. And if we never let anybody into our lives, then it's gonna stunt our growth. We're never gonna experience that. We're never gonna know what that's like. We're, we're never gonna get to be that for someone else because we haven't allowed ourselves to be gentle. We haven't allowed ourselves into those kinds of relationships, and so gentleness always leads to community and friendship and relationships. Here's uh, one last passage for us this morning. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 says this, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, there's only one spot in the New Testament that Jesus describes himself like this. You know, he says, I am the light of the world, and, and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. But here's one place where Jesus simply describes himself in, in really, really sort of normal people terms. And of all the things that Jesus could have said about himself, of all the ways that he could have described himself, the two things that he wants us to know is that he's gentle and that he's lowly in heart, that he has strength under control, that he, has so, he is strong enough to be gentle with us. Jen and I had a great privilege and fun last week of being in Chicago with our middle son, Josh, and his family, our grandkids, bunch of grandkids, and uh, five of them, and they have a baby, Janie, and Josh is a big guy, played football in college, and to see Josh holding that baby in big hands, holding that little baby and acknowledging and to hold her so gently. He's a strong guy, 
But there's something about that baby that when he holds little Janie, he is so gentle, he's so careful. Uh, he loves her. And we think about our Heavenly Father. We think about his greatness. We think about his power. We think about who he is, and yet he holds us so gently. He holds us so carefully. We're, we're so fragile in his hands. But he loves us. He cares for us. And we have this incredible picture of who God is. And then Jesus says this, come to me all you who are laboring heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. I have strength under control. And then this idea of lowly of heart, think about it this way, the God of the universe poured himself into human form and came and was born in a manger, born in poverty, born powerless gave up all the glory of heaven to come and be with us, that he made himself low on our behalf, and he says, that's the picture of who I am. If you want to look like Jesus, it, it requires gentleness and being lowly of heart, reminding ourselves constantly of who we are, of who Christ is, of his greatness in our lives, of what he's done for us. He's gentle. That's how he describes himself. And then he says, are you tired? Have you been laboring? This idea of take my yoke, uh, yoke, if you're familiar with it, it's a, it's a wooden uh, bar that they would put over oxen that when they would pull the carts or, or plow the fields or whatever. And, and, and he's saying, you know, sometimes that, that bar, uh, that yoke on us starts to feel so heavy that we can't bear it anymore. And here's what Jesus wants us to understand, that whenever that bar, whenever that yoke gets so heavy that we don't feel like we can carry it anymore, Jesus is saying, I need you to understand that that's not mine. That's yours. You've put that on yourself because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so take my yoke. Allow me to, uh, allow me to carry that burden for you. Allow me to walk with you. Uh, most of the pictures that you have of those yokes have, are two, they have two humps on them. One is for the adult uh, ox that would carry the load, that would pull the load. And the other is for a smaller ox and they would yoke them in together so that that young ox could learn how to haul the, the load. The, the young ox could learn how to do the work, but he wouldn't have to carry the whole burden. And Jesus gives us this incredible privilege of saying, take my yoke, harness up with me. I will show you how to carry it. I'll do the heavy lifting for you, but trust me because I am gentle and lowly in heart and give yourself over to me. So here's what it looks like for us this morning. <laughs> don't, don't go out this morning and say, okay, I need to be more gentle. I'm gonna, I'm gonna act more gentle because I'm not quite sure how you do that, really. I can't really tell you, okay, here are the three steps to live more gentle tomorrow, but I can tell you this, that you can determine in your heart before the Lord that this is how I want, I want my life to be like. I wanna look like Jesus. I simply want to look like Jesus. I want him to be the center of my life. I want him to be the most important thing about me. I want to look like Jesus. Lord, help me to look like you tomorrow. And you know what happens is that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, all of those things grow out of looking like Jesus. They come as a result of looking like him. Gentleness is not a temperament. It's a life that looks like Jesus. And it's a life that sees others the way Jesus sees them. And it's a life where we see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, uh, we acknowledge the fact that we get hung up on words sometimes and we get lost in what they